This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Twenty twenty three was a big year in video games. The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom brought a new installment to a beloved series six years after the last game. It broke sales records and became the best selling Zelda game to date. Zelda. We rely on your knight and that legendary sword he carries. Our last line of defense will be Link. And it wasn't the only blockbuster game to drop this year. There was Marvel's Spider-Man 2, Blizzard's Diablo 4, and Nintendo's Super Mario Wonder. And Square Enix's Final Fantasy 16 gave fans a new game in the 36-year-old franchise. All in all, gamers like Andrew in Chicago and Josh in Kansas City were very happy. Best video game of 2023 has absolutely been Final Fantasy 16. It's been about 10 years since Final Fantasy 15 came out, and for diehard Final Fantasy fans, have been super excited for Square Enix's sole release of Final Fantasy on the new PlayStation 5 platform, and it did not disappoint. My favorite video game this year was Diablo 4. I know it got a lot of heat and a lot of hatred for being potentially boring, but I thought it was a blast. It was just a fun hack and slash where you could go in and pretend to be a barbarian. Uh, It really hit a lot of the nostalgia notes from games from like the PlayStation 2 era. And I found myself experiencing nostalgia for something that doesn't feel that far away. And it was really awesome. At the 2023 Game Awards, the big winner was Baldur's Gate 3. It won five awards, including Game of the Year. Baldur's Gate 3 is a role-playing Dungeons & Dragons game. It was the latest in the 25-year-old series and a huge hit thanks to its complex story and characters. Later on, we talked to one of the creative minds behind Baldur's Gate 3. We also revisit our May conversation on The Legend of Zelda. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Joining us now to recap the year in games is James Mastro Marino. He's NPR's gaming lead and a producer at Here and Now. James, it's great to have you back in studio. Great to be here. Also with us is Gita Jackson. They're a writer and the co-founder of Aftermath. That's a website covering video games and internet culture. Gita, welcome. 
Hi, nice to be here. And Rebecca Valentine is with us, a senior writer at IGN. Rebecca, great to have you back. Howdy, glad to be here. James, so many releases in 2023. What happened this year to make that the case? There's a lot of different ways to answer this question, but the short answer is that we had a lot of delayed big games, many of them because of the pandemic. And so they all ended up coming out in short succession. Mm -hmm. So not a month passed this year without a huge release. Like in January, there was Dead Space. Then we had Hogwarts Legacy, which is a controversial game, but the best selling of the year. Uh, And then literally every month, a blockbuster, a game of the year contender, and it just never let up. December itself has been stacked. Gita, as a reviewer, but also a gamer, how did it feel trying to keep up with all the new releases this year? Well, um, I'm somewhat lucky in that the way that I work allows me to really dig into a game for an extremely long time. But that meant that I missed a lot of things, right? I actually haven't played Tears of the Kingdom yet. Really? I wish you could see James's reaction. (laughs) (laughs) All of my friends were obsessed with it for months, but I was deep in another game I had to review, and I always thought... Well, I'll have the rest of my life to play that game, right? But then there's just a new release, like, every single day. It felt like I I still, my my backlog, as people refer to it, is just full to the brim at this point of stuff that I haven't gotten to yet. Wow. So while there were these big games coming out this year, at the same time, the video game industry dealt with labor shakeups. About 6,500 people were laid off from jobs in the industry so far this year. That's according to the LA Times. In October, SAG-AFTRA authorized a strike against the biggest studios. Rebecca, how are you thinking of the labor issues going on in the background of this year? Yeah, there's been a lot of conversation this year about how uh, th- this sort of contrast that you're mentioning. Like, yes, this was an incredible year just for really enjoyable big games. But at the same time, it was seemingly, I mean, I haven't looked at stats or anything for this, but one of maybe one of the worst years for layoffs in the games industry. I mean, just studio after studio closing and person after person out of a job. And I, people are really starting to feel it. Like you you talk to people who work in the games industry and there's there's just this sense of, of frustration at, at the climate and the way, the way this industry that makes so much money off of these giant games uh, then turns around and, and treats its workers. And it, it feels very unsustainable. And it feels like, I don't know, with, with the, these labor movements, you know, slowly, slowly growing and, and, and uh, manifesting more and more in the games industry, it, it feels like maybe we, we might be able to make some sort of change down the line. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a really, really frustrating year for a lot of people. And we should note that some of NPR and WAMU staff are unionized with SAG-AFTRA's media broadcast unit, and that's separate from SAG's video game unit. James, the video gaming industry is more lucrative than ever. The World Economic Forum expects the gaming industry to be worth more than $320 billion by 2026. Sony reports it sold 50 million units of its PlayStation 5 console since it released it in in 2020. How prepared is the industry for the growing popularity of gaming? Because I'm thinking about this against the backdrop of the layoffs that we were just talking about. Yeah. So that's, again, as Rebecca was saying, a huge contradiction of the year. A lot of it comes down to the fact that budgets burgeoned under the pandemic when people were trapped inside and playing a lot of video games. And then when it dipped, when revenues dipped ever so slightly, a lot of what executives did was cut back on staff. Uh, And every company has a different story. You'll hear different reasons from Epic uh, to Microsoft to whatever we're talking about. 
Um, but the fact is that it's structured in such a way that there's a lot of churn. And this is an endemic problem. It's one of the reasons why unionization is on the rise. I have a game developer friend that said, if these executives, these CEOs that get paid millions of dollars could just take a pay cut like Nintendo did in the early 2010s when they had a shortfall, then a lot of these jobs could have been saved. But that's not the priority for many of these publicly traded companies. As for the size, it's only going to get bigger. And it's bleeding over into other media as well. We saw a massive Mario movie this year, a Last of Us TV show. So games are going to become more entrenched in our lives. Even if you're not a gamer, you're going to see something that's related to a gaming property on the big screen or on a streaming device. Now, we talked about some of the the big blockbuster games of the year, like the new Spider-Man and Zelda games. But Rebecca, many of the games you loved most this year were indie titles. How well did indie titles stand out this year among the blockbuster releases? Uh, I guess it depends on who you are. I I tend to be more in tune with smaller games. I I did play Tears of the Kingdom and I it was my favorite game this year, but I also I I skipped a lot of the games that you listed um at the start of the show and I I did spend more time on smaller games. And I feel like there were were a lot more small small games that stood out this year. Uh, we just saw uh, Sea of Stars, uh, I, if I remember correctly, take away Best RPG at the Game Awards and that was an indie game. Best indie um, game. Best indie best indie game. Thank you. Uh but yeah, um, a lot of a lot of smaller games are pretty much every single year. There are tons of smaller games made by solo creators, made by teams of single digit numbers of people, or even you know double digit numbers of people that are just small and have less funding than these giant blockbuster games. And these games, you know, still exist, and some of them do well enough to sustain themselves. And you have studios making you know small games year after year, and sometimes you have indie creators just putting things out out of you know because they want to make cool art. Uh, but there's there's dozens of them that did well enough, I, I guess I should say. Mm. Well, Gita and James, Baldur's Gate 3, it was on both of your best of 2023 lists. And this, is, again, is a fantasy role-playing game. It won Game of the Year at the 2023 Game Awards. Gita, what did you like about this game? Well, uh, I reviewed this game for Polygon, and I had some issues just because I... I've played a lot of D&D in my life, and this is a game where the gameplay system is based on D&D, and I found myself remembering all the things that I find frustrating about the gameplay system. But the reason why I kept coming back to it, because the writing is so rich and deep, and the characters are so compelling, especially my favorite character in the game, Asterion, who is this really, this, he's basically just Lestat from the Vampire Chronicles. <laughs> and you just get to hang out with Lestat all day, and that's very, very entertaining, it's uh, I to have you could play that game for an extremely long time, and the developers have thought a lot about how to empower the player to do whatever they want, and especially how to make sure that the player never gets stuck somewhere and can play through their sort of mistakes rather than having to restart from a save. Although. I was scapes coming a lot. <laughs> James, briefly, why did you like this game? Oh, man, I go so far back with Baldur's Gate 3. I grew up on Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. I mean, it's where, by- oh, man, that's a Pavlovian response when you start to creep <laughs> that in. But, like, this is also a game you can share with people. It's so good to play with friends. My wife was so interested in it and also wanted to get some of the time back that I wasn't spending with her that she bought it and rolled a rogue character so we could play together. So, as Gita was saying, there's just 
so many places the story can go. There's so many ways your character can grow and change with all of these others. Uh, it's a remarkable achievement, even though I agree that D&D itself is a clunky system. <laughs> now, Baldur's Gate 3 is the first sequel in the series in 23 years. How do you take on a massive story and a cherished legacy? Coming up, we talk to Adam Smith, the game's lead writer. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Baldur's Gate 3 won Game of the Year at the 2023 Game Awards. Larian Studios released the game in August, and it's the first sequel since Baldur's Gate 2 came out in 2000. It's a role-playing game based on Dungeons & Dragons. There's quests, companions, guilds, and a massive winding story. The absolute is more dangerous than you can possibly conceive. It threatens all who live. It threatens the gods, the weave, the very fabric of the universe itself. Merit is a fan of the game. They email, For me, the success of Baldur's Gate 3 shows that developers can commit to massive, character-driven games and be very successful instead of just recycling annual releases like Call of Duty and Madden. Well, let's turn now to the lead writer of Baldur's Gate 3, Adam Smith. Adam, welcome to the program. Hello, great to be here. So Baldur's Gate Lord runs deep, but for people unfamiliar with the game, just describe the story arc for us. So our game takes place 100 years after Baldur's Gate 2. We made it uh, 20 years later. Uh, so there are connections there, but uh, essentially uh, we start you off by infecting you with an alien parasite. Uh, and we let you roll from there. Uh, it's a story that takes that takes you to a city called Baldur's Gate. It's about world-ending crises, but really it's about hope and heroism and companionship. Now, the first Baldur's Gate game was released in 1998. The sequel came out in 2000. It's hugely beloved. A few remasters of Baldur's Gate 2 were released before this latest installment. But 23 years, that's a long time without a new game. How did it feel taking on this mantle? Terrifying. <laughs> the initial thought was, so I, like James, I grew up with Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. And uh, and I uh, I was worried that this would be insurmountable. We'd be playing with people's memories. We'd be playing with people's childhoods. Uh, for me, I was a teenager. These were very important games to me. So 
we knew we had to get it right. Uh, you never know if you will. Uh, we we took our best shot, but it was really uh, unnerving uh, at first. Um, we so, go ahead. Well, well, I'm just curious how you first began mapping out where the story would go. Yeah, so we 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 knew we wanted to end, and we knew we began, and then the middle uh, didn't belong to us. It belongs to the people playing it. So uh, this is the complicated part of making a role playing game. Is we say the player is the most important character. The players, I should say, because it's multiplayer. Uh, so we let them help to tell that story. So we have certain points we know we need them to hit, certain information we need them to get, certain enemies that we need them to meet. But uh, we need it to be open. We need them to be able to collaborate with us on the storytelling. So um, we, we we knew that beginning hook was good, which was the parasite. Um, and from there, we, we weave in hundreds of different stories. How do you keep track of of the story with all the variables and choices players can make in the game with great difficulty <laughs> so uh, we have incredibly good uh, teams uh, scripting teams who are actually tracking all the logic of the narrative so they'll they'll track what you did and the game essentially has a memory of all the things you did so they track all of that for us uh, and then we look at it and we say what are all the outputs here what are all the possibilities and we try to react as much as possible to what you did now Sometimes we can't as writers. So then the gameplay systems take over and they jump in and they give you a hopefully believable or fun outcome instead. But uh, it's a lot of spreadsheets is the actual answer and a lot of uh, squinting at screens. <laughs> do you have a favorite companion character, Adam? I do. It's Kalak. Um, so Kalak is uh, a tiefling. It's a, a tail, one broken horn, uh, and she's a fugitive from hell. So she's escaped from hell. Uh, and we gave her this incredibly uh, tragic backstory and then made her the most happy-go-lucky character in the game. Uh, she's somebody who has a huge weight on her shoulders but is enjoying every day as if it might be her last. Mm. And there's something very lovable about that, I think. As someone who's working on this game now but who grew up with it, I'm curious what you loved about it when you first started playing it when you were young. It was the companions, actually. It was, uh, it was the first time I remember playing a game where the people that joined my party, the people I was traveling with, they, they felt like people. They didn't feel like tools in a box. Often in old RPGs, you'd feel like you you had people come with you because of their skill set, not because of their personality. And it was the first time where I was like, oh, I want these people to hang around. Even though sometimes they were useless, I'd swap them back in again because I just enjoyed spending time with them. Uh, and the multiplayer aspect brings that out as well. It's like it's a, it's a game to be played together and to a game about, like I say, companionship. It's a game about people overcoming things as a group. What was your reaction when Baldur's Gate 3 won 2023 Game of the War- of the Year? It's uh, been recorded for posterity. I was dressed in a burr onesie for reasons that are complicated. <laughs> uh, and uh, and, and I, I wept. I, I broke down and cried. It was, uh, it was the culmination, I think, for me of a huge amount of work, a huge amount of love. I mean, it sounds cliche, I know, but like we put a lot of love into the game uh, and we didn't expect it. I mean, uh, we didn't expect it to be embraced in the way that it has been. But for Larian as well, I only joined Larian for Baldur's Gate 3, but Larian had been making these games for a long, long time. So seeing our creative director on stage, seeing some of the guys who've been here since the beginning, um, they've they've always been on the periphery and it was just really touching to see them center stage, yeah. Mm. When we do programs about gaming, we start to we've started to hear from people who started gaming when they were young and now play with their children, um, even in some cases with with grandchildren. You're part of a game that that is 
now multi-generational. How do you think about the way Baldur's Gate fits into the gaming industry as a whole and what it says about where it may be going? So there's there's two kind of answers to this. One, creatively, I think that the telling stories to um, our children, our friends, our brothers, our sisters, uh, and passing stories on is, is I, I think it's part of why we live. Uh, so anything that can help to do that across generations, I think is incredibly powerful. And I think for all the silliness of a Dungeons & Dragons game and for all the violence and for all the, we let you be the villain, but, uh, but I think we told a story that is, you can see where it touched people in ways that actually affected them as well. Uh, it's, it's a story about people with incredibly deep problems, some of them emotional, some of them physical, uh, and learning to, to live with them and to not just survive, but to live better lives. Uh, I think that's very powerful. And then from the other perspective, which is we made a game that is uh, a full game. Uh, we, we're not charging for the patches we put out. Uh, we're not a live service game. We're, we're kind of old-fashioned in a way in the industry as it stands now. And, uh, and I hope more people will look at what we did and say we can take that creative risk. Now, creative risks are risks. Uh, and we, we did this um, with a lot of experience and, and a lot of money uh, that was earned on the previous games, um, previous Larian games, not Baldur's Gate games. Um, but, I, but I want people to be able to take these risks. And, and uh, I think it was uh, Rebecca who was talking about playing a lot of small games. I mostly play small games as well. And, uh, and I hope it gives everyone confidence to say we can make that we can take those chances. It doesn't need to be a hundred and fifty million dollar game. It doesn't need to be a four hundred person studio. Uh, I think that people taking the risk to be storytellers in this medium is very important. So it's clear the game is is incredibly successful, both critically and commercially. For people who who pick up the game after listening to this conversation, what kind of experience do you hope they have? Uh, I hope we make them cry, <laughs> which oh. is a strange thing to say, but. Uh, uh, I, I, I like to move people. I hope we make them laugh as well, and I hope we make them uh, smile. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I hope it touches them. Uh, I think also uh, the D&D mechanics, as people say, they can be very, very intimidating at first. Uh, and I'd say to anyone who's never played this kind of game before, don't worry if you make mistakes. Uh, we have easier difficulties. If you only care about story, you can then crank up the difficulty. You start to enjoy it. But um, don't let the numbers and the rules get in the way of the story because um, they they support it on the whole. So and beyond that, any any tips for first timers to the game? Uh, yeah, I, so I, I'm actually going to contradict what I've said earlier. We have a character called the Dark Urge. So and we often said around release, don't play that character type on your first playthrough. Actually, I'd say give it a shot. Um, it's a character with kind of invasive thoughts who is leaning toward darkness. Resisting that, I think, is my favorite version of this game. Um, actually trying to play with uh, that, that attempt to overcome. So, go dark. Go dark. That's Adam Smith, lead writer of Baldur's Gate 3. Adam, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much. James, we've spoken about multiplayer, uh, multi-role player games like World of Warcraft and League of Legends before. How does Baldur's Gate 3 fit in with other fantasy role-playing games on the market? Uh, well, it's very different from those because World of Warcraft is a persistent, massively multiplayer online game, whereas in Baldur's Gate 3, you will have a save and you'll have other people join you on your in your respective quests. Um, but after some initial hitches at launch, it's been relatively smooth. You can even play with uh, NPC companions and friends. 
Uh, and if your friends aren't available for a session, you can literally stick them in a closet and play with more of the non-player characters. Uh, and for me, it was just a wonderful way to enjoy all of the richness of that story that Adam Smith was talking about. Um, there's a robust online community that's constantly discussing it as well. Um, but we were there in the front seat enjoying every time Mysterian uh, said something witty and ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, we've spoken on the show before about the power of community when it comes to gaming. How does Baldur's Gate fit into that conversation? Well, aside from the fact that you, you know, as as has been mentioned, you can play with with friends, or I've I've been playing with my husband. Uh, Baldur's Gate Three has become so popular that everybody's talking about it, and we've seen multiple games this year. Tears of the Kingdom was another one uh, where everybody, as they were playing these big blockbuster games, kind of simultaneously but separately, everybody was going online and talking about their experiences. And Baldur's Gate Three is wonderful because, as as Adam mentioned, the the story can go so many different ways. You're never going to have the same playthrough as someone else. Mm. So everybody's sharing screenshots and stories saying, oh, I got this event. Oh, I got this event. Oh, this happened. Oh, look at this character. Look at this funny moment that I had. Um, and everybody's sort of reveling in, in in the diversity of experiences that they have and sharing those and enjoying this game together separately, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to hear from each of you what types of games you found yourself drawn to this year. So this is a role-playing game. Gita, did you did you find yourself being pulled towards certain types of games in 2023? Well, I mean, if there's any kind of game that can consume my time forever, it is a game where you are building something or there's resource management. So uh, the, a game SteamWorld Build is like an example of this kind of game, which is also one of my favorites of the year, where it is a city builder, but also there's like a whole resource management game going on underneath it where you have to discover and then balance all of the different resources that make your city run. Um, Dwarf Fortress is like the ultimate version of that game. And uh, whenever I find myself thinking, I don't know what to play, I will always play one of these games. What, what is it about that type of game that attracts you? Well, they're designed so that they will never be perfectly balanced, but I am the kind of person that is always trying to find that perfect balance for, for between everything that's happening. Rebecca, what about for you? Well, I did play a lot of RPGs. So we mentioned Baldur's Gate. I played a wonderful little RPG called In Stars and Time, which is separate from Sea of Stars. Uh, but if you want to get away from that genre, um, I also played a lot of puzzle games. Uh, so games where you're maybe not fighting so much, uh, you're maybe not building anything, but the primary mode of getting through it is by solving puzzles of some kind. Uh, one of my favorites this year was called Chance of Senar. Uh, which is about, it, it's a language-based puzzle game. So you arrive in this tower where everybody is speaking uh, a language that you don't understand. And there's no there's no text that's familiar to you in this game. It's all just these sort of, uh, I guess, letters or wor symbol words uh, that you don't recognize. And you have to, through context clues, learn what they mean. So someone's waving at you and they're uttering this specific symbol, you know, oh, that's probably a greeting. And you have this little notebook where you start to keep track. And as you climb the tower, uh, you run into more different languages and you're able to sort of translate between these different languages and learn how to communicate with this group of people you found yourself among. And it it ends up being very, very cool. I love I love good language puzzlers. <laughs> and James, for you? I love Chance of Sonora as well. And I think the games that I tend to come back most to are the ones that are experimental in their, narr in their narrative or form. Um, Love Tears of the Kingdom. It iterated and experimented on Zelda so many ways. Baldur's Gate 3, just in the sheer sense of scale and wonder it provides. Uh, and then Alan Wake 2 is probably the game that I keep thinking about the most 
because it is a very strange <laughs> sequel to a game that came out 13 years ago uh, and is at once a blend of, say, Stephen King, Twin Peaks, maybe a bit of Silence of the Lambs. It incorporates live-action film alongside its survival horror narrative. Uh, it's incredibly meta and weird and is just constantly asking the player to think about it, which is not something that games always do. I mean, Chance of Sonar is certainly cerebral, but in many ways, we enjoy games because they give us an escape. But Alan Wake 2 was that and a bizarre experimental film stroke <laughs> uh, meditation on narrative stroke uh, discussion of trauma and the power of storytelling. And there's just so much to unpack there. We'll hear a little bit more about Alan's Wake uh, 2 a little later, but Ethan emails, Alan's Wake 2 was my favorite game this year by far, better than Baldur's Gate and Tears of the Kingdom, even though both of those games were phenomenal. Alan Wake's, <laughs> Alan's Wake 2's narrative, storytelling, and graphics were better than any other game I've played. We also heard from Barbara who emails, I've really enjoyed playing Fay Farm on Nintendo Switch. It's really cute, not violent, and has an engaging story. And Jude says, 2023 has been a year of nonstop great games. I've spent the year trudging through Xenoblade, Chronicles 1 and 2, which are long JRPGs. Those are Japanese role-playing games. And it's a fun world to get lost in and an insane story. How do JRPGs differ from RPGs, Jay? Uh, they come out of the Japanese role-playing tradition, so Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest. So the typical distinction these days that's perhaps the only meaningful one is that the turn-based combat, combat usually has you like lining up your party and then the enemies line up and you take turns hitting each other. As opposed to, say, Baldur's Gate 3, where you're moving around a world and then taking turns, taking actions in the physical space. We're going to head to a quick break. Stay with us. We've got a lot more still ahead. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. Now, we were talking about Alan Wake 2. It ended up on both of your lists as a favorite of the year, James and Gita. So it's a horror survivor game where you play as a crime novelist trapped in an alternate dimension. The first game was released in 2010. A page of text written with a typewriter. Someone's been watching us. How do you run from an idea? From a story that lives in your head? 
nightmare. We should mention James McCaffrey voices Alex Casey, a character in Alan Wake 2. The actor also voiced the video game character Max Payne, and McCaffrey died this week at the age of 65. James, what did you love about Alan Wake 2? Oh, there's so much to love and also quite a lot not to. But um, the main thing is, again, just how ambitious it is, how it's trying to encompass so many media, including writing. That is the main character's profession. Uh, but also film. It incorporates a lot of film sequences. It'll either layer it, layer it through transparency over your gameplay or you'll just be treated to a cinematic. Sometimes those go on, go on for like 16 minutes. <laughs> um, and... I'm very grateful that this team out of Finland, led by this uh, visionary Sam Lake, uh, is just willing to take these swings. Even if I didn't always love the actual survival horror gameplay, it could be a bit tedious. Gita, what about for you? Oh, I never miss a chance to evangelize about Remedy Entertainment, who is a Finnish studio that I think has created a really fascinating legacy for themselves that they are willing to examine and re-examine through their own work repeatedly over the years. Um, what I love about this game is what it, the way it dips back into Remedy's history. So you mentioned James McCaffrey, for instance. James McCaffrey is playing a character named Alex Casey, who is the visuals of that character is based on the motion capture data of Sam Lake, the uh, creative lead of the studio. And Sam Lake also appears as Sam Lake in a talk show during the game. Um, and Alex Casey also appears as two versions of himself. One that bears a striking resemblance to Max Payne, who was also voiced by James McCaffrey and based on the face data of uh, Sam Lake for their very first video game. So it's it's a lot of um, dipping into surreality, also dipping into a very Lynchian style of like a kitsch, Americana and kitsch. There's a lot of coffee. There's a lot of uh, long drives to the lake. There's also now in this game a lot of Finnish kitsch. So there's a lot of saunas. There's two Finnish characters that talk about saunas and drinking beer alone as very uh, as, uh, heralded Finnish traditions. Um, there's there's a lot of real personality in this game, a lot of love and a lot of humor. It strives to make you feel more things than just being scared, which a lot of times video games only want to make you feel empowered. And this one tries to make you feel a little bit sort of like the rug has been swept out from under you and you're not sure where you stand. We should say that horror video games kind of had a moment this year. The movie based on the popular horror game series Five Nights at Freddy's was released in October. What's happening, James, with, with horror games? Are they becoming more popular? Are people being drawn to them more? Yeah, I think part of it is just the virality. Like Five Nights at Freddy's went viral through its indie game series many, many times in the prior decade made sense it would be a blockbuster film at some point. And then we also saw remakes of beloved games like Resident Evil 4 and Dead Space. And both of these were celebrated because there's entire generations of people that weren't there for the seminal moment that both of them made and get to experience them anew, retooled for modern hardware and for the most part, tastefully reimagined. Rebecca, your favorite game of the year was The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, and it was the first installment in the Zelda franchise since 2017's Breath of the Wild. We talked about Tears of the Kingdom when it first came out back in May. You can find that conversation at the1a.org. Rebecca, after sitting with it this year, what do you still love about it? 
Oh, so many things. I James earlier called it ex- experimental, which I think is I, I think we have maybe possibly similar taste in games because a lot of the experimental elements, the the building, the, the building basically any structure that you can think of out of the pieces of the world uh, to solve your problems for you or to get around uh, was really enjoyable for me, especially as someone who doesn't typically like building games. Uh, I found that it fit into Tears of the Kingdom's world so well that I actually found myself enjoying it. But I don't know. I think I think the thing that I love the most about both Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom is the atmosphere and the exploration. I love being a little guy running around this giant world and constantly stumbling upon something that makes me go, oh, wait, what's that? Oh, wait, what's that? Just over and over. And Breath of the Wild had that in spades, just in the giant world of Hyrule. But the fact that Tears of the Kingdom added all these sky islands and then also, I guess, spoiler alert a little bit, uh, this giant depths the same size of Hyrule underneath everything that ended up being this weird dark mirror of what was on the surface. Uh, it, it, it blew my mind and I, I spent easily over a hundred hours just finding new things and being surprised over and over again by the beauty and and the strangeness of it all. Well, we're hearing from lots of you about your favorite games of 2023. Sarah emails, I was most excited for the release of In Stars in Time, a indie RPG on Steam and stream Steam? Is it Steam? Okay, Steam and Nintendo Switch. I followed the creator for years and played the prequel, which is not required, and loved it. I love time loop shenanigans, and while I'm not finished, I'm so intrigued by the world it's set in. Evan emails, I've been an avid gamer all my life. This year has been a great year for video games. Alan Wake 2 is my absolute favorite. It's campy in a good way and so multi-layered. It's comforting to see a game come out that's not an obvious cash grab, and it's priced lower than most new releases. The developer really outdid themselves. And Stacy emails, as the parent of a seven-year-old with visual and physical disabilities, one of the greatest developments in gaming this year has been the major gains in accessibility features. Whether it's the physical controllers or the options to reduce visual clutter on the screen, seeing the effort of the industry to include people like him in this community is a real joy. You can continue to add your thoughts about gaming in 2023. Email us at 1A at WAMU.org. James, can you speak to that accessibility question that Stacy brings up. Yeah, it's getting increasing attention in part due to the tireless work of people like Able Gamers, an organization uh, that promotes accessibility for people of all different stripes uh, in the industry. Um, PlayStation, Sony just put out a new accessible controller. Xbox and Microsoft have been working on this for a long time. It's honored at the Game Awards. It's another category that they celebrate there. Uh, and increasingly, you'll be taken straight to an accessibility settings page as soon as you boot up a game, letting you know that there's tons of different features, be it for colorblind people, for people that just need different settings changed for reaction time to make it easier uh, and more inclusive to play. Here's a voicemail we got from Douglas. One of the games we were looking forward to playing this year was Starfield. Uh, you know, we heard about it and heard about all the hype, and it, it lived up to it, I'd say. So, uh, one of the best games, and of course, we're waiting for Grand Theft Auto 6. And Hunter emails, Starfield from Bethesda was the game I was most excited about in 2023, exceeded my expectations. Now, that game was released in September by Bethesda, the game, game studio, and it became their biggest game with 6 million players at launch. Rebecca, the game is an adventure role-playing game set in space. Describe the playing experience for us. I have not played Starfield. <laughs> oh, no. Gita, have you? 
I also haven't played Starfield. <gasps> All right, I, I can, I can jump in here. It's on you. Okay, it's on so you. Starfield is Bethesda's take on something like No Man's Sky. This You have a huge universe to explore, dozens of massive planets, and the, the selling point is that you can get in a spaceship and you can fast travel anywhere and you can walk for a really long time to get to places to do little objectives and quests and kind of unsolve the and solve the middle the mysteries of the universe. Uh, it was a huge game for Bethesda. It it did kind of peter out a little bit after its initial release and it didn't get much love at the Game Awards. But the fact is that people who love these games really love these games and they only stand to get better over time as Bethesda works on their pretty notorious reputation for bugs and as the impassioned modding community gets to work and starts to add so many more features into the game. Now, Douglas also mentioned Grand Theft Auto 6. The first trailer was released earlier this month. In two weeks, that trailer has racked up 153 million views. Gita, the game isn't out until 2025, but the hype is clearly there. What's the enduring appeal of Grand Theft Auto? Well, the enduring appeal of Grand Theft Auto is doing uh, hood rat things with your friends <laughs> uh, in the parlance of a young black person from, you know, a, a, a child from years ago. It, it like... W- it is a world where you are given the frame that you can act without morals. But I also think that these games are compelling satires of American culture, very European style satires. So often uh, they are a-, a bit too, I don't know. I feel like in order to really satire American culture, you have to be an American to understand what this wor- world is really like. But I, I can't help myself from getting a little bit hype about this, especially the new game. The trailer says it's it's set in Miami with a lot of Florida culture. And I feel it's also the first one that is going to have a female protagonist, which I'm very excited about. Um, there's the allure of just getting out of a car and shooting a bunch of cops is still too strong for me to deny it, you know? Well, I think... I think- it's interesting. We've been talking about a lot of games that have been around for a long time, right? Lots of sequels. Is there sequel fatigue setting in at all, James? A little bit. So it's funny because Baldur's Gate 3 and Alan Wake 2, for example, both are descendants of games that have long series that have long gone dormant. So in that sense, there's kind of this excitement that they're coming back and they're doing something new. On the other hand, some of the best selling games were still games like Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 and Madden NFL 24. Like these are institutions. There are plenty of people that love them, but people in the games press tend to just kind of roll their eyes because it comes off as just flogging another dead horse. So I think it's a case by case sort of thing. The sequels that get the most excitement are obviously the ones that are reinventing themselves in some way. Even Super Mario Brothers Wonder, which looks like a very classic Mario game, is at least injecting a lot of new and bizarre elements into it to keep your interest. Well, we're hearing from Justin who emails, I truly love the Resident Evil 4 remake. The controls, game mechanics, visual story, and intense action sequences felt so good. I've clocked in well over 100 hours and I'm still loving it. 
Kurt sent some love for Baldur's Gate 3. The story for Baldur's Gate is immersive. It is both an escape from reality and one that can make you feel more hopeful for your life outside the game. You can play through emotions and learn to be yourself, feeling comfortable in your own skin. That's the true perk of fantasy writing, after all, the dearth of character development. And Brian emails, as a longtime gamer, Diablo 4 pulled me back to my Xbox after a hiatus during the first half of the year. It's good fun. I do worry about the series of acquisitions that landed Blizzard under the Microsoft umbrella. As far as I can tell, Blizzard has no plans to release Diablo 4 for Macs, for Mac, and I'd love to be able to play on my laptop as well as my console. Smells a little of a monopoly, and my sorcerer suffers the consequences. I mean, Rebecca, James is referring there to uh, Microsoft's acquisition of Blizzard. How big of a deal was that in gaming? Absolutely massive. It is easily the the most expensive and biggest uh, video game acquisition we have ever seen. Uh, It ended up under the microscope of the FTC and I believe is still under various various regulatory microscopes, uh, even though it has already gone through. Uh, It's a really big deal. Activision Blizzard was regarded as one of the the, the big AAA publishers, basically. So, you know, there's the big three. There's Sony, Nintendo, and, and Xbox, uh, the three console uh, makers that also then make software. But then there were also, you know, a very small handful of massive AAA publishers who did not make consoles but did make massive games. And Activision Blizzard was one of them. And it, it feels like after after ZeniMax, which includes Bethesda, the makers of Starfield, uh, after they were acquired by Microsoft and now Activision Blizzard sort of swallowed up, it feels like that, that field of giant AAA publishers is is shrinking a little bit. It's all kind of consolidating into Microsoft. And so, you know, there's a lot of questions about what that means for the games industry, if it's all kind of housed under one roof. And we we heard a lot of different possible answers to that during the trials over the summer. Uh, I don't think we'll know exactly what it looks like for another couple of years when that acquisition kind of fully, I guess, you know, settles. But uh, yeah, it's it's pretty big. Okay, we've got about 30 seconds left here. So quick round robin. We got this email. What game should I as grandma buy for my 13-year-old grandson who has just moved from Fortnite to Call of Duty? James? That's really hard. Uh, Okay, so they like shooter games. Um, You could try something like Hi-Fi Rush. It's an action game. It's a rhythm-based musical game. It's exciting. Not about shooting people, but there's plenty of excitement to be had there. Gita, what about for you? God, um, I feel like at that age, you are searching for a challenge. And I know Armored Core 6 would be a greater challenge than Call of Duty. But I think it would also be incredibly rewarding. And once they get over the initial hurdles, it would be extremely fun for them to customize their little uh, giant robot that they get to shoot all the bad guys with. Rebecca, real quickly. Might give No Man's Sky a try, actually. Uh, Adventure playing with friends, building emergent stuff. Maybe that's a happy medium. All right. That's Rebecca Valentine, senior writer at IGN, Gita Jackson, a writer and co-founder of Aftermath, and James Mastro Marino. He's NPR's gaming lead and a producer at Here and Now. Rebecca, Gita, James, thanks. Today's producer was Arfi Getty, whose favorite game this year was Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. When we return, we revisit our May conversation on The Legend of Zelda. We've got a lot more still ahead. Six years after the release of Breath of the Wild, The Legend of Zelda is back. Tears of the Kingdom is the latest installment in the 37-year-old video game series. It takes us back to the kingdom of Hyrule following the latest adventures of Link and Zelda. 
The demon king Ganon has returned and Link, the young swordsman, has, swordsman rather, has to defeat him to save Princess Zelda and all of Hyrule. Zelda, we rely on your knight and that legendary sword he carries. Our last line of defense will be Link. Link. But this time, Hyrule's open world looks a little different. The addition of Sky Islands sends players into the clouds, providing a brand new dimension to explore. And although the game came out less than a week ago and sales numbers for digital copies haven't been released, it's already the biggest game of 2023, selling more physical copies than any other release this year. 2017's Breath of the Wild, released alongside the Nintendo Switch gaming console, was a critical and commercial success. In a GQ survey, of 300 video game experts and journalists, Breath of the Wild ranked number one in a list of the 100 best games of all times. So how do you follow up the greatest video game ever made? Joining us to talk Tears of the Kingdom is Gene Park. He's the video games reporter at the Washington Post. Gene, welcome back to the program. Hi, Jen. Also with us is Rebecca Valentine. She's a senior writer at IGN. Rebecca, welcome. Howdy, thanks for having me. Well, we asked you if you've been playing Tears of the Kingdom. A member of the 1A Text Club wrote, yes, and of course, I have found dozens of new ways to accidentally kill Link. It's great. Uh, Rebecca and Jean, I'll tell you, I played a little bit yesterday. A couple of our producers uh, <laughs> brought the game in so I could test it out, and I walked off a cliff within about five minutes. So that was fun. But like we said, Tears of the Kingdom comes six years after the last Zelda game. Rebecca, what was the hype like for this release? I think the fact that it exists at all um, is is on its own absolutely wonderful given the level of excitement and joy there was in Breath of the Wild. Um, But I think more than that, seeing this extra dimension in the Sky Islands and seeing just how much bigger they could make a space that was already, by video game standards, absolutely massive, and then fill that entire space with so many interesting things to do. I think uh, of all the things in Tears of the Kingdom, that alone makes it stand out immediately. Gene, what was your experience playing Tears for the first time? Uh, I was really struck by, you know, the Zelda series, uh, once it entered 3D, uh, was really influential in the medium. So I was really struck, just like what Rebecca said, about how the series is now utilizing 3D space by uh, including these sky islands that you talked about, as well as uh, a completely new underground section. So uh, it really makes you rethink the rules of how to exist in 3D space. That was kind of the most fascinating thing. And that includes uh, being having so many different ways to solve puzzles and overcome different challenges. Well, we've been hearing from some of you about your excitement for the new Zelda game. I've been playing Zelda since the Game Boy Advance games. My family and I began playing Breath of the Wild during lockdown of the pandemic. I have three kids. None of us are real gamers or video game people, but oh my gosh, that game saved our family. started playing Zelda when I was a kid in the early 90s, Link's Awakening on the Game Boy. We've been looking forward to Tears of the Kingdom for months. We were playing all weekend. It made for a wonderful Mother's Day. I've been playing Tears of the Kingdom all weekend. It's incredible. What a great game. Tears of the Kingdom came out. We had a huge party. Our whole family sat down and played. Tears of the Kingdom is worth every bit of hype that it's gotten so far. Only been playing three days, and it feels like I've been in there for years. Love it. Give me more. (laughs) 
Lots of love for Tears of the Kingdom. I want to bring another voice into the conversation. Chris Plant is with us, the editor-in-chief of Polygon. Chris, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So you've sat with the game for a few days now. What are your initial thoughts? I mean, existential relief, I think, is probably <laughs> it. Uh, on, on a purely on the work side of this, we've been preparing for this game for the better part of two years um, in making, I mean, massive business decisions around it. So you really hope it's it's good when you, uh, you're you planning for something this. Uh, I think like the Marvel's uh, Avengers Endgame sort of scenario, I think a lot of people are familiar with that and how that was for film. And, and that's kind of how this is felt for us, uh, for folks who cover video games. Well, as we heard in those voicemails, it's really easy to get sucked into the open world in both Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom. But for people unfamiliar with an open ga- open world game, Drew from Atlanta texted us this description. So much of the gameplay has you thinking, okay, I'm going to this place and it shouldn't take very long because I know the map. On the way, you get sidetracked by a Korok quest, those little forest spirits with a variety of tasks that reward you with treasures. That leads you to the mouth of a cave. Of course, you now have to explore the cave and the other end of the cave is on the opposite side of the mountain. Then, hey, look, there's a shrine down the way. So now you go to the shrine and obtain a fast travel point. But before you fast travel back to where you were, there's a character you want to talk to before you forget about them. Oh, geez, they want to escort you, escort them to a stable in a completely different part of the map, but you really want to know what the reward is. When you get to the stable, there are more characters with more quests, and you have forgotten what you were originally doing. Rebecca, how does that sound as a description? That is that is perfectly accurate. And I, I think that was the case with Breath of the Wild as well. And, and what makes Tears of the Kingdom so impressive and I think is that it is functionally taking place in much of many of the same locations. It's still the same Hyrule. It's still the same characters, a lot of the same ideas like Korok puzzles, shrines. Those were all present in Breath of the Wild in mass, but Tears of the Kingdom somehow makes them all seem new again. And I'm having that exact same feeling that I loved so much six years ago in this entirely new space. And that sheer level of novelty is incredible. Jean, what do you think it is about this virtual world that makes it work? Because in hearing that description, I mean, I could very easily see it becoming overwhelming for someone playing for the first time. Yeah, the the way the game is designed is very meticulous in terms of how it draws your attention. Uh, It's it's very step-by-step. If you notice, every like shape in the in the map is triangle shape like the mountains or even like a castle or a town so you can always kind of see around it so you can always kind of peek around and see what's 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 next in the corner so your curiosity is always always being peaked uh no matter where you go i want to go back to our voicemail box my name's mike i'm 34 hi i'm charlie and i'm eight uh, my first Zelda game was Ocarina of Time. My first Zelda game was Zelda Breath of the Wild. I played it on the Nintendo Switch. And we're now playing Tears of the Kingdom together. Very wonderful experience to uh, play Zelda games with Charlie uh, together. I remember the first time I showed him Ocarina of Time, his first comment was the graphics are not very good. And yeah, we're, we're both working our way through the new one and having a blast and really enjoying mm-hmm. 
playing with each other. Literally, I got blasted with bomb arrows like five times. (laughs) (laughs) We also heard from Teresa who emails, I fell in love with Zelda Ocarina of Time years ago. It was finally a video game that was as much fantasy as it was fighting and had an amazing storyline. Now my kids are obsessed and I couldn't be happier. We played Breath of the Wild together and now they are so excited for Tears of the Kingdom. It's Interesting, Gene. We got, or Chris rather, we got so many cross generational messages. People who started playing now play with their kids. Uh, people who have gifted the kid the, the game to their parent, and now the parent is playing. Why do you think this story has been so popular for so long? That's a great question, and, it, and it's kind of tricky because on one hand, it's been immensely popular for people who love and care about video games for a very long time. But only now is it really clicking with this massive, massive audience. This is already the fastest-selling Zelda game of all time. And I think there there are kind of two things that happened. There are the generation of people like me who grew up on games and maybe late millennials or, or Gen X. And then they are now passing along to their kids. And their kids are the first generation that practically every one of them grew up playing video games because they all had a smartphone or a tablet in front of them or a Chromebook at school. So you have kind of the seed uh, generation that is now passing it along to, to them. And then for Zelda itself, it's just Nintendo. They, they make really, really good games, and it's classic fantasy, which people can relate to with Lord of the Rings or Game of the Thrones, and all that kind of comes together into one kind of perfect stew. Rebecca, how does Tears of the Kingdom build on the world of Breath of the Wild? Uh, so it it has that very uh, kind of, well, the, the puzzle design that the Zelda series has been very famous for. Like Nintendo started out as a toy maker. They're very good at making these intricate little puzzle boxes. But the way that Tears of the Kingdom sort of takes it to the next level is it hands the player just this massive arsenal of tools. You have this ability called Ultra Hand that allows you to essentially, essentially take two objects in the world and glue them together. So you can take, you know, two logs and glue them together with like a sail and make a raft to cross a river. Um, And then you get all these other little engineering implements. You can get a fan, you can get a flamethrower, you can get a balloon, you can get all these other things uh, and, and stick them all together and build these ridiculous machines or tools or other things that will allow you to uh, solve any of these puzzles. So for anything that you, uh, approach, there's going to be a solution that is offered to you, or you can just build a ridiculous contraption uh, to solve it in a different way. And I think I think that is a major step up from what Breath of the Wild was doing. Steve in Virginia told us about his experience playing Tears of the Kingdom. I am playing it, as are my two sons. They're a little bit further ahead than I in the game so far. However, it's wonderful. Uh, I've been playing the franchise since I was about six or seven it's wonderful to see what Nintendo continues to do with it and how much progress they've made over the nearly four decades of this this game. And another of you shared this. I'm a huge Zelda fan, and Breath of the Wild was one of my favorite games of all time. I'm only a couple of hours into Tears, but I can tell it has the same heart of discovery as its predecessor. The new abilities are all so cool, especially Ultra Hand and Fuse. And Ultra Hand allows you to pick things up and Fuse helps you stick things together. Overall, I love what I've seen so far and I'm so excited to keep playing and to keep diving off Sky Islands. I will never get tired of that. Now, the first Legend of Zelda game was released in 1986 and developed by Miyamoto Shigeru, who also created the Mario Brothers series. Gene, what were those early games like? Uh, If anything, the very first game was very similar in terms of its philosophy towards freedom. 
uh, the very first screen of the very first Legend of Zelda game doesn't even ask you to talk to anyone or swing a sword. Instead, you're you're seeing three paths and a cave, and you're and it's up to the player to decide where to go first. So the game immediately gives you very monumental decision to take place. And you don't even have a sword yet. You have to go into the cave to get a sword. And the game never tells you that. So the, the game really encourages you to explore and learn these lessons uh, organically uh, through your gameplay. A member of our text club writes, I think it is a technical marvel from a coding perspective, judging from the awe it's getting from developers around the industry. And it's a perfect example of how chasing the highest visual fidelity and effects often just wind up being a crutch to cover up poor gameplay. Aesthetically, Chris, how have the games and their graphics changed over time? They've just gotten a lot, a lot bigger in practically every imaginable way. Um, to to Gene's point about the original game, I mean, that game could fit on whatever the smallest little memory card that you have for your camera. Uh, uh, it would take up a fraction of it. It is just a small little 2D game. This game, you know, it has an entire universe to explore in the sky, on the ground, uh, inside of the ground. And then it's borrowing from other popular games right now, like Minecraft and Fortnite, with the idea of creation. Um, and that just was not a piece of these games. Uh, back in the day, you you kind of went from dungeon to dungeon, collecting abilities and using them to get to new bosses. And now it's kind of up to you to explore. If there were three ways at the beginning of all of this, there are infinite ways now. Rebecca, I mean, when I when I started playing the game yesterday. Uh, from a coding perspective, I was just thinking how <laughs> how many layers of coding are built into this game because I can do almost I can do almost anything, you know. <laughs> I can I've got to run away from evil robots. I might accidentally walk off a cliff, or I might try to solve a puzzle in a way that doesn't work or makes absolutely no sense, which I also did yesterday. But to help us understand the the technical side of this game. Oh boy. Well, I'm not a coder, so I couldn't tell you anything about number of lines of code. Uh, but yeah, it is it is absolutely a technical marvel. I think I think a good way to understand it is that video games, you know, they're they're basically computer programs, and the vast majority of video games, you know, they have a, a specific intended way that they want you to play them. And if you start to sort of go outside of that, if you start to you know do weird jumps off of walls or, or push things in ways that don't make sense, you can break them very easily. Uh, and I think one of the most impressive things about Tears of the Kingdom is not just its extreme size, as you know, Chris and Jean have said, but the fact that you can do all of these things that you describe and so much more and just not break it. Uh, it it's, I, I'm sure somebody has found ways to break it, uh, but it's a normal, a normal playthrough of this game lets you experiment in so many strange ways that most games would not let you do and it just it functions it functions perfectly well and 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 gives you interesting responses to all these strange things that you're doing and that alone i can't even imagine the level of work that went into that it's unprecedented we got this email from jay who says i played breath of the wild and one of my few criticisms is that it just ended i really wanted to explore hyrule castle without having to deal with the blight but the credits rolled instead how much does tears of the kingdom allow you to explore the previous world of Breath of the Wild. Uh, Chris, do, do we know yet? I mean, we know in that it's the same map, but it's been completely <laughs> upended. Uh, so if somebody's looking to explore a peaceful version of Hyrule, 
Uh, I, I, I regret to inform them they're not going to get to do that, but there will be lots of other nice things they can go do. Um, and at the end of the game, I mean, that, that's probably going to be for a lot of people between 60 to 200 to 300 hours, <laughs> um, depending on how hardcore they want to go with it. So I, I think it'll be a ways before we know if there's some post-credit sequence where all is returned to uh, normal and happy and peaceful. Now, Gene, in your review, you write that the story of the Zelda games isn't necessarily the draw. But first explain what is the narrative through line of these games? The narrative through line is right there in the title. It's The Legend of Zelda. So, you know, you can think of it as kind of like the same, like like a creation myth, just kind of being retold over and over again with different details. Um, there is... An, an, an attempt to to have a through line story, uh, a, a sort of timeline, but it's very convoluted, and it really does seem like that the N- Nintendo developers uh, really don't really prioritize it as much uh, in terms of, of of what they focus on, and they really just focus on, on mostly the gameplay. But the storyline is really just kind of retelling the same story in many, many different ways. And sometimes the details get a little fuzzy. Sometimes the details change. But it's always about a boy named Link, a princess named Zelda, and usually a a, a bad guy named Ganondorf. And Link's quest is to rescue Zelda, as we heard at the very beginning of the show, right? Yes. So, So without that narrative through line, why do you think this game is so appealing to people, Gene? I think it's because it's just very well. First of all, it's 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 very it's a very simple hero's journey, right? But in terms of 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 play, uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator, famously, uh, there's a famous anecdote about how he created this game. Uh, it's inspired by his uh, visiting the the forest areas in in the back of his home, and he discovered a cave, and he just really wanted to create a video game that kind of. Uh, you know, re, you know, reimagines or or rebuilds that kind of same childlike experience of discovery. So it's 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 always fascinating to play the game because you're always discovering something new. Uh, there, there's always there's always some kind of new cave. There's always some kind of new like dungeon or castle to explore, and that pool just never stops being fascinating. Rebecca, what was your earliest experience with the Legend of Zelda? Uh, I was in kindergarten. Uh, I went to a, I didn't have any game consoles at home. I didn't play video games, but I went into a latchkey program and they had the original Legend of Zelda and you could sign up to play for 10 minutes and a little timer would go off and then it was the next person's turn. And so I got to, I mostly watched the eighth graders play because I didn't understand how to play at the time, but I did, I did attempt to play a little. And once you started playing, what was appealing about the game for you? I... I lo- it felt enormous to me at the time. And in retrospect, you know, it's, it wasn't that big n- knowing games as I know them now. Uh, but it, it, it was certainly big for its time. Uh, it, it just felt it, it, almost the same feeling I get with uh, Tears of the Kingdom and Breath of the Wild now. It was, it was this big, mysterious world. And I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I died a lot because I was in kindergarten. Uh, but I... Every time I played, even if it was only for 10 minutes, I would go off in a different direction and I would discover, oh, there's a new cave here. There's an enemy I haven't seen before. There's what's in the graveyard. There's a way to get in the graveyard. How do I do it? Uh, and that that always fascinated me. I just knew I would find something new and, and interesting every single time. Chris, what about for you? What was your earliest experience playing Zelda? Uh, <laughs> my mom, uh, I grew up in the Midwest. My mom was a hairdresser and dad was a fireman. So uh, they 
weren't I, they either weren't around a lot or when they were they were working from home. And my parents got a NES, the original Nintendo system, with a copy of Zelda. And I was able to play a video game whenever my mom was doing basically like haircuts at home to like make a few extra dollars. Mm -hmm. And it was also a way for her to kind of like watch what I was interested in. And I would dig in for a couple of hours at a time completely confused. And her or whoever she was doing her hairstyle for would kind of give me tips because I was definitely very young for it. And yeah, I, I, it, I, I think that's like the special thing about games, right? We, we have these like... It's not just the story of the game like it would be for a movie. It, it's the story around the game, around what you're experiencing that you bring to it that, that kind of gives you that, that added nostalgia. Uh, Gene, I want to hear from you, too, about that early experience playing the game and what drew you to it. Yeah, I was actually on the ground floor. Uh, my grandmother uh, traveled to Japan quite a bit. And about when I was six years old in 1987, she came home with a, with a Nintendo family computer, the Japanese version of the NES. And with it was a copy of The Legend of Zelda. Um, so it, it was, like Chris and Rebecca said, it was a very mysterious game. Um, you know, again, you're a little bit paralyzed by choice in terms of where to go and, and, and what to discover. So I did need a lot of help from my parents. Uh, and, you know, I'm really struck by the comments that you guys are getting from callers, uh, so many parents playing the game with their children. And it really echoes, uh, that, that experience really echoes throughout the generations where this game is very universal and easily understood enough that, that multiple generations can look at it and kind of try to figure it out. Now, we mentioned that Tears of the Kingdom introduces a whole new element of gameplay by giving players the ability to build and infuse objects together. Chris, how does that change the game? I mean, it, it changes the game in that you can kind of do whatever you'd like. Um, you can make a giant tank or a mech, or you can make um, some very not-safe-for-work things that have gone around, which you don't normally see in a Nintendo game. Uh, but I think what's, what's most telling about that is it's such a response to how people played the last game. In the previous game, Breath of the Wild, you could use different effects to propel yourself across the entire world, and you're kind of breaking the game. And what Nintendo seemed to recognize in that is rather than take those things away, we should give people more tools, more ways to express themselves, more room for creativity because the best promotion for their game is everyone playing it, making their own unique things, and then throwing it on the internet, whether that's on you know Twitch or Twitter or, or any other way for showing their excitement, enthusiasm, and creativity with the game. Now, we should mention that players have taken the crafting ability to some some strange places, including uh, creating Korok torture devices. And again, the Koroks are these tiny woodland creatures in the games. They're adorable. Uh, people are monsters. <laughs> but it does speak to the freedom players have in this world. Rebecca, what does that feel like as a player when you have that much freedom for, for good or, or ill. Well, I'm not torturing Koroks. I don't know what's wrong with the rest of you. Uh, it, it definitely, it makes me feel like a genius, honestly. Like I'm, I'm not a, an especially creative person, uh, all the time, but so, you know, I come up, I come up on this, you know, hill that I, you know, normally I could climb a hill in, in a game like this, but maybe it's covered in spikes or maybe there's like a big wall or, or something that's making it difficult for me to access this thing that I want. And usually in a Zelda game, when you see a challenge like that, 
sitting around somewhere are you know some blocks or some some specific solution that the developers are offering you uh, to sort of overcome this obstacle. And that's still the case in Tears of the Kingdom. There's always at least one solution that is laid out for you somewhere. But I don't have to take that in Tears of the Kingdom. I can open up my backpack and maybe I've got a rocket and I can glue it to my shield and I can just blast off and get up there. Or maybe I can make a stupidly long bridge from the ground up to the top of this wall and just run up it by like gluing tons and tons of logs together. Um, or, you know, there's probably 50 other ways that I could accomplish this. And that's true for every single puzzle in this game. And whenever I do it, it plays that little sound. Um, and I, I feel like a genius. I feel like I was the first person to solve this in what, this way. What, and, what sound uh, does it play you. again, Rebecca? What's the sound? <laughs> 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 the little Zelda sound. Everybody knows it. Well, Chris, I, I'm curious how you think this may change the landscape of video game creation. That I, I, I would hope greatly. Um, in reality, I expect very little change. Um, uh, and there's two reasons for that. One is the previous game, Breath of the Wild, um, people are still trying to catch up to that one in terms of what it was doing with open world and game design and player creativity. And the fact that people are largely still not caught up, and then for this to come around and be like another five or six years feeling ahead of everything else, there's just a lot of catching up to do. The other part of it is to make a game like this just takes tremendous investment. I mean, we're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars. We're talking about um, retaining teams. A lot of the people who made this Zelda game have been making Zelda games for a very, very long time. And that level of consistency just doesn't happen in the video game industry, especially in America and Canada, where there is such instability that you're lucky for a video game studio to stay open for, you know, 10 years, let alone for people to be working on the same project for that long. Um, so I, I, I don't think we'll see as much change as necessarily a lot of people would hope after playing a game like this. One member of our text club wrote, I've been playing Zelda for over 20 years. Tears of the Kingdom can't compare to Breath of the Wild, which was mind-blowing after a decade or two of procedural, trying-to-be-open-world-but-not-quite Zelda games. But it's gorgeous and makes me feel like a teenager again. But Ryan from Kentucky texted us this, I believe Tears of the Kingdom is better than Breath of the Wild, and this is coming from someone who has played Breath of the Wild for the last six years. It almost feels plain and basic compared to Tears of the Kingdom. We heard from Brett, who emails, I've been an avid fan of The Legend of Zelda since the original game in 1986. Each game has something new to offer. Tears of the Kingdom builds on its predecessor in so many ways. It's also very refreshing because it asks the player to use creativity to solve puzzles. I feel for younger gamers, it will help them with critical thinking. Chris, walk us through how a player figures out, A, that there is a puzzle there, <laughs> and B, how to solve it, or like Rebecca mentioned earlier, just being like, never mind, I'm just going to strap a rocket to my back and fly out of here. How do you, what are the cues or the clues you get when you're playing the game? Yeah, well, how, how a player figures out a puzzle there is, is kind of like describing how a magic trick works. So I, I'll, more, I'll better describe the trick itself rather than the the. the details of the behind the scenes but video game designers have a whole bunch of techniques to kind of guide your eye and one of those like cinema is light where is light directed in the frame and often something that you should be paying attention to is going to be a bit brighter or maybe there are sounds that are pulling you towards it or maybe you're in a giant field and you notice that there is 
uh, mysterious uh, aircraft just sitting out there waiting to be explored. And those things are naturally going to pull you towards it. And then you'll realize, hey, this, this is something that can be interacted with. There is a puzzle here. Um, and then in terms of the actually solving it, was that, was that the question? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, you either will know how to do it or you will go to polygon.com or IGN.com where Rebecca is from and look at one of our guides that will gladly help you out because that's the reality with games like this is they can be quite opaque. They can be quite difficult. And what Nintendo understands is that Google exists. So they can make these things very challenging. And for players who are ready for that challenge, that's great. And if you're not, that's also okay because there are going to be lots of people on the internet who want to kind of be like a tour guide uh, in a new location and kind of show you around and help you out. Rebecca, as a, as a player... How do you or do you use guides when you're playing to help you navigate some of the world? Uh, I, I have nothing but respect for guides and the people who write them. And IGN and Polygon both have incredible guides teams. Uh, I personally, I do use guides when I need them. But I, I very much prefer to, as, as I was talking about earlier, get that genius feeling of having solved it myself. So I will, I will just start, you know, hitting random objects or, you know, try to use context clues or experiment with the stuff that's lying around to see if any of the silly things that I do with them triggers an interesting response, which might lead me to the solution of the puzzle. But if I, if I get stumped, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll open up a guide and, and take a look. Cause I, I don't like feeling frustrated. I don't play games to feel frustrated or angry or bored. And so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get some help if I need it. Well, we got this email from Eric who says, as a kid, I remember seeing the gold cartridge of Zelda for the NES at my friends' houses. My parents never thought we needed a game console, so it wasn't until my adulthood that I got to decide I wanted a Nintendo. Now I get to play with my kids, and it's delightful to see how we each have a different way of playing the game. A Breath of the Wild was released alongside the launch of the Nintendo Switch, the only console where you can play Tears of the Kingdom and Breath of the Wild. Rebecca, it's a six-year-old console at this point. Does the hardware of the Switch hinder the gameplay at all? I don't think it hinders gameplay. Uh, it is there are some noticeable uh, sort of visual things going on. I was uh, I was walking across a bridge last night, and there were some big, you know, tall poles with these banners on them, and the banners are supposed to be flapping in the wind, but they were sort of moving just like a couple frames per second because there was just a lot of things on screen at once, and the switch was having trouble keeping up. Uh, so there's there's some things like that uh, going on where where there's just little visual blips that that don't look amazing. I think if this game were less than it is, it would bother me more. Uh, but because I, I had so little time to think about the banners because I was so interested in the 20 other interesting things in front of me that I wanted to do. Uh, I think a lot of people are expecting uh, some new Switch hardware in the coming years. And I hope when that time comes, we see Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom on that hardware running better than ever. Uh, I, I truly can't believe they put this on the six-year-old machine, but doggone it, they did it. Well, Nintendo hasn't released its older Zelda, Zelda games like um, Wind Waker or Ocarina of Time on the Switch and you still have to have a working older console for those. Chris, do they have any plans to release older Zelda games for Switch? Yeah, so there are ways for you to play some of them right now. Uh, they have an online service, kind of like going off like a Netflix model where you can download old games like Ocarina. I, the rumor for something like Wind Waker and a lot of these older games is that they've been finished and ready and could launch at any moment. Uh, but I think 
you know, you, you don't want to cannibalize your own market. You have the biggest game in the world right now, and it will probably be that way for the rest of the year. Um, so the idea of, of putting out more Zelda, um, on one hand, there's a lot of enthusiasm. Maybe, maybe people would buy it. Uh, but on the other hand, everybody's already pretty busy with this one. Well, Gabriel from Durham left us this message about the game. I'm 51 years old, and I've been a big fan of the games uh, since its inception. Played Breath of the Wild when it came out. It was, as far as I'm concerned, the best Nintendo game ever. I'm now playing Tears of the Kingdom. I'm liking it. Don't get me wrong. However, it just feels like the same game we're doing the same things, going to shrines. Those of you who play know what I'm talking about. The same general uh, playthrough so far as uh, as the first one. So we'll see. Still a fan, though. Gabriel, thanks for that message. Now, to his point, the map of Hyrule is the same between the games. Many of the features are the same. Rebecca, how well do you think Tears of the Kingdom does in distinguishing itself as a sequel? I think it does rather well i i i do disagree with with that uh, assessment of it uh it is it is the same map of hyrule but it's it's several years since the events of breath of the wild and you know things have changed uh we we defeated ganon in breath of the wild sorry spoilers uh and or calamity ganon and uh the world during that period of time returned to a time of peace and so there's there's different settlements that have come up there's more people there's more things going on and then at the start of tears of the kingdom there's a large event that causes these islands to rise into the sky and then a bunch of them seem to fall down also some some of them and so there's all this chaos around the world too and then there's these big holes in the ground and so it's it's a place that you are very familiar with, but there are so many significant changes that you're constantly looking around going, wait, that wasn't there before. Or, oh, that character, I remember them from this. What are they doing now? Uh, so there's that alone. And then there's the addition of the Sky Islands, which were not there before. The addition of this massive underground area as well. The addition of caves, which were not generally available in Breath of the Wild. And so it's it feels like initially like exploring a very familiar place but the further you get the more the more twisty and distinct that familiar place gets chris your thoughts yeah i that question is or i guess the point is really interesting from the listener because i think it's very fair and i understand where that's coming from but i think there's a larger kind of lack of literacy around video game creation in the world and there are any number of reasons why that is that we could get into uh, but making a video game like Breath of the Wild is just stupendously difficult. Um, it, it is an entire world. And we have seen lots of burnout. We've seen lots of uh, studios shut down across the industry. We've seen, I mean, just a ton of talk about unionization. And I think that there, as these games get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more expensive and higher and higher risk, there needs to be um, consideration for healthy ways of making video games of this scope. And I think this is a really great version of that, of saying, okay, we made uh, arguably the greatest game of all time. I think GQ just put that ranking up this week. Um, Maybe we can borrow some of this. Maybe we don't need to completely build the entire thing all over again uh, for the sake of some idea of the new. We're talking to Chris Plant. He's the editor-in-chief of Polygon, Rebecca Valentine, a senior writer at IGN, and Gene Park. He's the video game reporter at The Washington Post. Now, Gene, we had to step away from you for a moment because there was a fire drill at your apartment, but you're back with us now. And I wanted to circle back to this question I asked earlier about whether 
this video game will have an effect on the production of, of video games to come, whether you think it's going to push the envelope some. Yeah, I do think Chris was right on the money, and thanks for having me back. Yeah, the fire, it seems like the fire alarm is over. Uh, I think Chris was right on the money in terms of how developers are still trying to catch up to Breath of the Wild back in 2017. Uh, but there's also a huge uh, focus on uh, fidelity and graphical detail that this game kind of foregoes. It's it's still a very beautiful game, don't get me wrong, but you know it doesn't look anything as expensive as, say, uh, anything on the PlayStation 5. And so many big-budget video games tend to focus on, on, on that aspect uh, because they really want to sell like, the so-called power of, of the, the console platform. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see whether uh, this game will kind of reintroduce uh, the more quote-unquote systems-driven gameplay, one that isn't really dependent on story or narrative or cinematics, but more on interactivity, uh, being able to uh, interact with, with different objects. Minecraft is obviously uh, at the forefront of this, and that has the most primitive graphics uh, you can imagine. So uh, I, I definitely think uh, maybe, hopefully we'll, maybe we'll see kind of a balance between graphical fidelity and, you know, just... The, the different game design that encourages different types of play. Well, we should talk about the money here. In 2021, the estimated global revenue made from video game sales was $190 billion. That's according to Statista, a firm tracking consumer data. That's compared to $99 billion, the global revenue of the film industry that year. Video games are the dominant entertainment segment. Uh, Chris, is that a new development? Not really. <laughs> um, uh, it, th- that it's this big, I think, seems fresh. But I, I feel like we have this conversation every three or four years that you know our video game is finally mainstream. And the reality is they've been mainstream for a very, very, very long time. Uh, again, the Zelda games have been being created since 1986. I think why it often feels like this is video games are curiously underrepresented in the media world. Um, you know, I think it's telling that the people that are here today are from uh, publications like Polygon IGN, which are uh, often seen as more enthusiast publications, that you could not fill out a panel of three people with professional paid video game critics at major newspapers. So, uh, no, video games are tremendously popular. They've been making a lot of money, and yet you you would not know it if you watched any major news program or opened any major newspaper. Well, we should mention layoffs in journalism have affected those covering video games. Rebecca, your thoughts as a journalist working at a publication specializing in video game coverage? I, I think Chris is exactly right. I, I think it is it is significantly under-recognized. I think there is still... It's it's hard to sort of place where this viewpoint is is still is still sitting, but there definitely seems to be sort of a, a, still a looking down upon um, uh, from, I, I, I guess, sort of some ma- major media or, you know, made mainstream recognition. Uh, the people who are the, the, the people, the sort of ephemeral people who are responsible for, for that. Like, I think there's still a thought that video games are sort of a kiddie pastime and they're not anything like very, very serious art, you know, in the same way that film or, or music or anything else is. And, and I, I think that's completely wrong. And I think it's not, and not just because of the monetary value, though, that's certainly a major component of it. I think because of the art and critical value and the cultural value they bring to our society. Uh, so yeah, I, I certainly agree with that viewpoint. And I, I wish we saw more mainstream uh, media and mainstream acceptance of 
this massively dominant art form that exists among us. We get this email from Eva who says, I'm a 21-year-old woman and I have been playing Zelda for almost 10 years. I started playing Breath of the Wild pretty soon after it came out, but I didn't finish it until 2020 when I was getting cancer treatment and was stuck inside due to that and the COVID pandemic. I started playing Tears of the Kingdom the day it came out and it's absolutely amazing. And Eric emails, I'm 80 years old and have never played video games, but I'm always looking for new ways to challenge my mind. How difficult is it to learn this or any new video game. What do you think, Chris? Wow. Uh, for f- these, these stories just kind of keep knocking me over. They're, they're so wonderful and beautiful and, and, and heartbreaking at the same time. For, for um, your listener who's, who's 80, playing this game might be a bit of a challenge. Uh, you have a, just a lot of buttons. Like that, that sounds silly, but it's just true. There are a bunch of buttons on the Switch, and there's two joysticks, and, and navigating all that can be a bit overwhelming. Doesn't mean it's not worth a try. That said, I think um, the great thing about the Nintendo Switch, and I mentioned that online service, the Nintendo Switch Online, is all of those classic Nintendo games are on there. And there's kind of a natural training path through the history of video games. You start with the 2D ones and work your way up to this, where you'll kind of learn how to play these games naturally. And I think that, yes, this is such an unbelievable pastime for people, especially in older generations, who are looking for something new and exciting and fresh. That's Chris Plant. He's the editor-in-chief of Polygon. Also with us, Rebecca Valentine. She's a senior writer at IGN. We also heard from Gene Park. He's the video games reporter at The Washington Post. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We will talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.